The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, today our show is about conflict beyond war, healing conflict beyond war. And we are so thrilled because we are actually speaking with someone who is all the way in Finland. So that's pretty exciting. Let me tell you about our wonderful guest, uh, Professor Douglas Fry. Dr. Douglas Fry is a docent in the development in the developmental psychology program and, and administers the program called Peace, Mediation, and Conflict Research, which is a cooperative master's program between the University of Tampere, I think, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but we'll have him help us, and Abo Academy University, um, and, in, um, and, and that's over in Finland. And Dr. Fry also is an adjunct research scientist in the Bureau of Applied Research in Anthropology at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. He's an anthropologist, and he's written extensively on aggression, conflict, conflict resolution from various theoretical perspectives, and his articles have been published in numerous magazines internationally, and he also is the author of this great book that I have sitting right in front of me, Beyond War, The Human Potential for Peace. I love it. Uh, he also is co-editor with Graham Kemp of Keeping the Peace, Conflict Resolution, and Peaceful Societies Around the World, and co-editor of Cultural Variation and Conflict Resolution, Alternatives to Violence. He's an associate editor of the Encyclopedia of Violence, Peace, and Conflict, the second edition. And during the 2011-12 academic year, Dr. Fry is editing a book called War, Peace, and Human Nature, and this is going to be published in 2013 by Oxford University Press. So before I go any further, he has so much wonderful background, a great background, and I want to thank you. Doug, may I call you Doug? Yes, please do. And it's okay. a pleasure to be talking with you. Right. So, okay. So we have this wonderful book. What is it that caused you to write this book, Beyond War, The Human Potential for Peace? Uh, well, basically, it is my academic interest as well as my hope and, and uh, well, my hope that we can really get beyond war, abolish war, and devise an alternative system for the planet. So we might as well start off idealistically, right? You know, uh, you have to have a dream, right? I think that's very important, actually, you know, to be very serious about that. Having a vision 
as a, to a better world is very important because if you just sit around and look at the, all the troubles, and there's certainly problems and troubles galore, um, that doesn't help other than just make us depressed and rather inactive. So having a vision, and, and hopefully we can talk about this a little bit later, but I yes. want to answer your question about the book first. Um, I decided that I'd been writing articles and uh, scholarly papers and this type of thing long enough and that I really had some unique insights and that anthropology has some unique insights on these questions of war and peace. And I thought it would be important to try to share some of the knowledge that anthropology has to offer uh, you know, to a more general readership. So I've written Beyond War uh, just as entertainingly and as interestingly as I possibly could. And I think that's rather easy, you know, if you're dealing with anthropology. But on the other side, it does sometimes amaze me how some colleagues manage to make it so dry and jargon-filled that it's <laughs> not interesting. <laughs> I didn't do that. I did not do that. No, and that's what I love about it, because everyone, I mean, if you have an intention that we are going to have a human that we have a human potential for peace and if we are going to move beyond war it has to get out to the mass media and it has to get out to the mass population not just those who are academics otherwise it's lost it's totally lost absolutely right so so let me ask you something you know you're an anthropologist and a lot of people don't even see how anthropology and conflict resolution have anything to do with it. And I remember, I don't know if you know William Urey at um, Harvard, but he... I, I sure know who he is. I have never met him in person, though. Uh, he's wonderful. So a disappointment. I, yeah, you have to meet him. He is absolutely wonderful. He's a fabulous mediator. And he was one of my professors at Harvard when I took my oh, conflict really? resolution training. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and he's written some great books, you know, that are really yeah, for I, everybody. I've read, uh, I think, probably all of his books. Um, yes. He, he has won the third side, which was particularly interesting to me and sort of inspired me. I think it came out originally in 1999, and I started working on Beyond War and Human Potential for Peace right around that time. So. And then he uh, has another one called the, po- the Power of a Positive No. Oh, it's it's great. Yeah, in fact, you can listen online because we we talked about that. You can listen. We had him on our show, and you can listen online to the interview about it. And it's about when you say no, always come back with something that people can say yes to. And that's, you know. Yes. Yeah, you'll love it. It's it's great. Philosophically good and probably very effective when you're negotiating. Yes, and he does like what you're trying to do, which is trying to get it out to the everyday person, because if you just keep it with the academics, it's not, it's not going to, it's not going to hold. It's not going to get anywhere. So I, I have to, I, I can't resist but telling you something that's in my wild fantasy life. I realize, you know, Yuri is uh, an anthropologist and I'm an anthropologist and he does conflict resolution and I do conflict resolution. And somehow it's really strange that we've never actually been in the same room together and met each other. But when this eventually does happen, if you keep in mind that his name is spelled U-R-Y, and my name is spelled F-R-Y, I'm going to walk right up to him, shake his hand, and say, Hello, the difference between you and me is you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he'll love it. He'll love it. He is, he is such a down-to-earth, wonderful guy. You will just absolutely love him. So yeah, why don't Well, that I... tickles my funny bone. That just occurred to me. We have... Yeah. All these uh, three similarities of three-letter names and almost the same at that. And yes, yes. The other similarities I mentioned. Yeah, you should contact him or send him your book or whatever. It would be great. Well, I have emailed with him in the yeah. past. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what anthropology teaches us about conflict resolution because I think it's very intriguing. 
Well, there, there's so many lessons there. Um, one way I like to look at it is anthropology gives us a, a macroscopic perspective, meaning that we can go back in time in one dimension and look at uh, human nature in that way. What was it like in the past and, and how did we um, get along? How did we resolve conflicts um, back in the ancestral environment of you know, the long track of our species' existence? But the other thing that anthropology does very macroscopically is to allow us to have this cross-cultural perspective and then see also a human nature question, what are some of the similarities across cultures and uh, also what are the differences, what's the variation? And as I see it, uh, all these different perspectives are, are very important and elucidating. I mean, just as a generalization, every single culture has a kit bag of techniques they use to resolve conflicts without violence. And we just take these things for granted in our own culture uh, and tend, probably tend not to think about it very much for other cultures. But um, people just turn their back in a void or they put up with something at the very non-involvement level. But more typically, uh, they go to a third party of some sort. Maybe it's an elder or counselor of elder or a wise person in their family to get help in mediating. Or in some groups, then uh, there's uh, the whole band, if it's a hunter-gatherer band or the community, gets involved with trying to help people solve a dispute of some form. The Samai, uh, interesting culture from Malaysia, they, they engage in a sort of marathon encounter group, is what the anthropologists called it, of talking out the issue and exploring it from all possible, issue, uh, all possible perspectives with the help of the, not the whole community, but a large segment of the community, the relatives of the disputants, uh, the elders, and so forth, until they really just hashed the whole thing over uh, it can go on through the night. Um, they can eat food. They can, some people can take a nap if they just get too exhausted and so forth. But by the time this is really done, uh, that conflict is put to rest. It's resolved in some way or another. And the idea is not usually to find fault with a particular person, but to point out how um, they could have done things differently. And the most important is the harmony of the community and that they get along well and let's go on in a positive light. So. Yes, and I, I have a friend who went to Fiji. She's a she's an attorney mediator, and she went on to to talk to them about mediation. And she sat in a group where they were actually resolving conflict. They all had kava kava first, and they uh -huh, were so yes. mellow. They were so mellow <laughs> that <laughs> she saw that that's what they do when they're going to resolve a conflict. They all drink kava kava, and then they it, they go around, and everybody has their peace, and they get to talk, and then they resolve the conflict. So, um, you know, that or meditation first or whatever. But it, it, she thought that was really fascinating, that kava kava was so important in the negotiations and the mediation. It is, and, and some of the techniques that are used are really quite intriguing. Um, another one that I, I found fascinating comes from Australia. And um, what, what they did in this particular situation was they linked the resolution of the current day conflict between a, a couple of men um, to what the ancestor spiritual beings had done. And the, the ancestral spiritual beings exchanged the carved sacred boards. And once they had done this, and it was a big procedure, of finding the right wood, cutting it out of the tree, uh, carving it and back and forth, and a lot of ritual involved that I won't go into. But the, the essence of it was that this then linked the res resolution of the conflict to the past, to their spirituality, and part of it was it could never be brought up again. So in this dispute, that's what the elders decided would be the appropriate thing. So one man with his group of supporters and friends carved a board for the other and vice versa, 
And that conflict was, again, just laid to rest, never to be brought up again, because you couldn't do it. You absolutely couldn't. It would be sacrilegious and so forth. Mm, interesting. I wonder if that's part of their forgiveness, if that's forgiveness, because sometimes it's hard to forget, but when you forgive, you give it up. So what do you think? Yes, I, I think that's probably true, sure. I mean, we don't necessarily forget, as you say, but it is important to forgive. Yeah. I think we, that's very important. We give it up for ourselves so we don't carry that burden around with us and make ourselves nuts, right? That's, that's it, part of it. That's right, yeah. If I could take your, your first question, I know you have, probably have some other questions for me yeah, too, oh, but you know, contributions of anthropology, Yes, I think it would be important to mention that in looking across cultures and seeing that there are different ways that conflicts are dealt with, I mean, one really important message here is that most societies do engage in warfare, but not all. So one real important lesson from anthropology is that warfare is not something that is absolutely inevitable that it is possible for societies and neighboring groups to, to live in peace and, and not engage in any war with each other. And one thing that I've been looking at in the last few years as a real interest is what I call peace systems. And these are clusters of neighboring societies that don't make war with each other, and sometimes they don't make war, period. So they're not making war outside of this, this cluster of societies. And what I'm trying to understand now in my research is how do they live so successfully in this peace system uh, and so I, I have some ideas about this. We can go into it or not or touch yeah, on them later yeah. or however you want. Well, let's but, go into um, it now. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, one key factor here, is, as I see it, is interdependence. Hmm. And um, let me just give you, you know, a couple of specifics to this. We won't go into too much detail. But there's a group of 10 different tribes uh, from the Brazilian Amazon and the upper Zingu. Um, river basin, actually, and uh, four different language groups are represented, and they have a larger identity than just the individual tribes. So they have actually, on purpose, fomented a type of economic interdependence to m amongst the different groups, where people from one village uh, cut trees and carve hardwood bows, which then all the groups can use for hunting. Another group makes salt, another group makes pottery and so forth, and they exchange these goods. And even though in some situations everybody, all the villages could make a particular product, they abstain from doing so. So it creates this interdependence economically. Hmm. And um, this, this may seem like a, a flying leap, but I like to make flying leaps sometimes. Sure. The European Union was born out of exactly the same idea. And I definitely view the European Union as another example of a peace system. In fact, an incredible example of a peace system. If we think about that one, I mean, Europe was just devastated after World War II. They'd seen so much destruction and so much loss of life, so much tragedy occurring right here in their countries, and people were homeless and, and hungry, even in some cases near starvation, you know, when they were liberated and so forth, and the war ended. So Europeans basically very, very deliberately, I don't say all Europeans, but a few key people like Jean Monnet from France um, came up with this vision, which we mentioned earlier, that we need to create a new system here on this continent so there will never be a war again. And that's just 60, 70 years on, and they've been highly successful at that. The idea that there would be a war within Europe today is just absurd. It's about as crazy as thinking that, oh, Colorado might go to war with Kansas or something like this. Right. You know, it's, People right. laugh at it. And, of course, there's a smaller amount, of, a shorter amount of time has passed, 
But um, so anyway, these, these I, I, I think are, I think the, the worry now is that you know I, I think you're uh, what you talked about what goes on in Brazil where they're um, you know they're interdependent. I think what what's happening now with the euro and and Spain and Greece is is really a challenge, you know, because the interdependence was great. I don't know about the euro if that was the greatest idea, <laughs> but um, well, it, I think it's a ultimately that's going to come out just fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I have this disease of some level of optimism that's a bit higher than the norm, but um, what, one thing I've noticed in the press is across the other side of the Atlantic that the American journalists like to talk about the death of Europe and the demise of Europe and all of these stories and headlines all the time. Uh, I mean, we have our own economic problems back in the States. They have them here. Right. You know, we're dealing with them. These are sort of natural cycles of economic up and down. And, I, you know, I don't want to minimize it for people who are out of work. It's yes, just a sad, yes. difficult situation here in Europe and also in the States. But my overall point is compared to eliminating the institution of war within a continent, Right. Um, economic problems are sort of on a different level, a different issue here. Yeah, the European so, Union did did have them join together as really, you know, seeing that they're they're like a family, much more of a yeah. family, right? Well, that's another factor that I think is very important. I call it uh, expanding the us, you know, yeah. creating a larger identity. Mm-hmm. And we did it in our own history. If you think about the United States, we started out as colonies. And those colonies had very strong identities that they developed. And, you know, at first when we formed a a union in the United States, uh, the different former colonies, now states, young states, still had their own currencies. They had their own legislatures. You know, they they had various rights and abilities to do things, which now the federal government in America has taken over. So, of course, this loose federation, confederation, we should say, didn't work so well. So we formed the federal government in the States. Well, it's sort of similar here in Europe. They're trying to do this with, again, the confederation model. Um, Some people want to push it more towards the federation, and maybe it'll go that way in the future. Uh, But at least uh, they are cooperating very well. Uh, You might say too well if you look at some of the bureaucracy and standardizing different things, you know, across uh, countries. Um, For the most part, it's a real attitude of cooperation and expanding this us-identity that the younger Europeans, if you think about it, um, kids, they've been born into the European Union. That's just natural and normal for them. Right. The university students that I work with, they are accustomed to hopping on a jet and flying down to see a friend in Spain or Germany, and in Finland, of course, um, or wherever, um, just like we would get on a plane and fly over to Texas to see a friend or go to a wedding in Nebraska or whatever. So th- there's still this appreciation that, yes, we're from Finland and we're Finns or we're British or whatever, but there's also this growing identity that we're, we're Europeans. So that's a, a parallel, and, and it takes time, of course, but it also becomes, I think, very important in maintaining the peace over time. You, you form this new level of identity. And, and, you know, that's what's so sad, how we can't see, you know, the problems with the, the Middle East and, you know, and, you know uh, and Western society, uh, that, that we're not looking at it as us, like we're all here. I guess if we had an invasion from aliens from another, you know, world, <laughs> we might have to look about us against them. You know, I think you, that, that might you know, be Mar- different. You, you, <laughs> you put your finger on it as far as I'm concerned, and I've got to tell you the good news and the bad news, and that is that we do have an invasion. It's already here. 
we could look at it as global warming, for instance, yes. climate change, right. being exactly that situation. Environmental issues, is, yeah. Yes, uh, pollution of the seas or protection of the fisheries, loss of rainforests in different parts of the planet, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, climate change is something that is so obviously going to affect and is affecting the entire planet. The only way you can deal with a problem like that, a global problem, is deal with it through uh, cooperation and work together. Yes. And I'm not just, um, you know, I'm an anthropologist. I'm not talking pie in the sky here. Right. I could give you a couple of examples, which, uh, in my experience, most people don't even, uh, haven't even heard about. One is the Mediterranean Action Plan, which is uh, under the auspices of the United Nations Environmental Program. The countries that ring the Mediterranean realized that their sea was dying in the late 60s and early 70s. And they've been successful in protecting that sea from dying. And, in fact, the Mediterranean is still swimmable. The People are pulling wonderful fish, seafood out of it all the time. And the cooperation amongst those initial 16 countries, and now it's been expanded as the former Yugoslavia broke into different countries. So there's 21 different countries uh, with different religions and different backgrounds that are ringing the Mediterranean. And they've been cooperating for the last 30-some years uh, to protect their common heritage, their common resource, their sea. So I think that's a wonderful example of how countries who are not necessarily friendly, uh, Arabs and Israelis or Cyprus and um, Greece and so on, um, can put that aside when they realize there's a common interest and something really important to motivate them to work together. So some of these countries are, of course, EU countries, but many are not. So this goes beyond what we're talking about with the European Union. Right. Again, that whole thing about us, and and it, it goes to a deep level of understanding of our humanness, doesn't it? When people start to realize, if if I dehumanize you, that you're a terrorist or whatever you are, you're dehumanized, then there's no way for us to communicate or see that us, right? I mean, we don't understand each other. You're You're not even human. If we think of it like that, then there's no way for us to say us. Yes, I, I mean, I totally agree. It, it, it's, we're, we're humans. We're able to go in both directions with this. We're able to put up our walls and, and make a very limited us and perceive the others as the them, that famous us versus them type right. of um, But at the same time, we're also able to break down those walls in a different way and say, whoa, those people over there, they're actually a lot like us. And as a matter of fact, they, they thought it could be us, and maybe we could at some point exchange favors here, um, trade with each other, then maybe get mm-hmm. married, form alliances, and so forth. I mean, this is what the Zingu people do and many, many other people do. This is what the Europeans are doing uh, as well and, and so forth. So, I really do think that we can expand this us also up to the global level. There are plenty of people who already talk about global citizenship and you know, being concerned about humanity. And one feature that you also see as a, as a universal human trait is having empathy, so it's not like we have to start from scratch and learn how to be kind to people or concerned about other people and uh, you know, show compassion and so forth. We already have that ability. It's just a matter of extending it up to higher levels. Right. So in and, that sense, I'm rather hopeful. Yes, and I, and I am too. And when we think about the Internet, I know there's a lot of scary things on the Internet, but when we really think about the Internet, it is it is bringing us to us because I can, or, or even the fact that you and I can talk so easily, you know, ac- across miles and thousands of miles in time zones, you know, that we are really one. And as soon as you get on the internet and you start, you know, communicating with people that, you know, are in 
different countries and you can do it in an instant, it, it starts to make you realize, gee, you know, we really are all connected. And, and I think that's one of the beauties of the Internet for us to see that we really are connected. I agree. Absolutely. Yes. As you research war and aggression and conflict resolution, have you seen some surprises? Any kind of surprises? Well, there's one sort of academic surprise, but it's a very important one and it has real-world implications. And that is realizing gradually how our own cultural views in the West about human nature and about war and peace and this type of thing are really, they have influence and they continue to influence the way that the scientists are going about their research. And it, it really sort of snuck up on me. And I caught example after example of this. So when I was writing Beyond War and the previous book, Human Potential for Peace, I, I didn't expect to develop this as any sort of discussion or theme, but I ended up making that a theme in both of these books. In fact, it's, gonna, it, it's continuing. I guess maybe I'm, I'm stuck in a rut in some way, but I, I don't think so. It's just such an important issue. Because, you see, if, if we're looking at ourselves as a species and we're assuming that we are basically warlike or that there's nothing we can do about war because war is very old, uh, older than humanity itself, uh, it's everywhere, blah, blah, blah. If we get into this type of mindset, it, it does not encourage us in any way to find alternatives to war. You know, why fight what you can't really right. conquer? It's fatalistic, you know, it, yeah. It's fatalistic, yes. It's just in our nature. Blah. Well, that's just simply not true, and we can talk about some of the evidence for that if you want, but that to stick on this, this issue of you know, surprises and themes and so forth, I found this time and time again in archaeological studies and cross-cultural studies and so forth, where in different methodological ways or through how they picked their samples or how they defined their terms and so forth, it was always going in line with this Western Hobbesian view that war is naturally out there, that it's always been there, always will be, and so on and so forth. And, uh, of course, this is really important to, to challenge this type of thing. Right, change your thinking and change the world, right? Yes, if and, we all and think again, that. Just, just to draw it into a specific, you know, a concrete example, again, European Union, you know, the, the, they managed to think about this, okay, how are we going to eliminate the threat of war on this planet? We've already been through two major wars in this century. We've had enough, century, right? World War I <laughs> and World War II, <laughs> and centuries of war, actually, you know, preceding that. Yeah. Europe just has this litany of, of war after war after war after war. They just plain got tired and totally fed up with it after World War II, and um, I, I think we need to do that as a planet. We have to get, yeah, we have to get to the point where where we are so sick of that kind of war yeah. that it's time to change. But it is time to end. So why don't you just give the website for the university, and then we can send people to also look at the book Beyond War: The Human Potential for Peace by Douglas Fry. Yes, actually, uh, I have a little blurb on Amazon.com since you're mentioning the book, so that's a good way to find me rather easily. Okay. The book titles are my name, and uh, my university here is Obu Academy, and uh, you can find my homepage at, at that by www.abo.fi for Finland, F-I. And terrific. Well, thank you so much, Doug. It's been just terrific oh, having pleasure. you on, and we will we'll talk again for when the next book comes out, all right? Oh, okay, thank you, Mari. It's been okay. my pleasure. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. And also please visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thank you. It's about trust. Yeah.
AECI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.